Welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 49th episode. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, we just want to put out a quick message to say that if you do enjoy these podcast episodes, please feel free to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tag myself, tag Jack, and feel free to tell your family and friends about it as well. And in exciting news, Jack and I have just launched our new YouTube channel. So we're now on YouTube and uh, you get to see our beautiful faces instead of just our uh, beautiful voices. (laughs) Jack has the most beautiful voice. (laughs) But yeah, so guys, if you search the bodybuilding dietitians on YouTube, you will uh, come up with a few of our videos. So we've just launched two videos. One is an introductory one, you know, what our plans are for YouTube. And another one is just like a day in the life. I filmed, you know, a day in the life of comp prep for me about 17 weeks out. So we're super excited to now be on YouTube and, you know, have a new platform to share more content with you guys. And uh, yeah, we've got a lot of plans for it. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm planning to release a video this week as well. You'll just have to wait and see what that one will be about. And yeah, it's very exciting. We can't wait to continue putting videos out there. As always as well, I just wanted to mention that if you were interested in about our coaching services, you can always find that by heading over to our website, which is linked in uh, the description notes for the podcast and all of our Instagram bios as well. Or alternatively, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. Sweet as. All right, guys. So before we jump into the Q&A for today, we're just going to give a bit of a life update to uh, say, you know, what's been up with us for the past week. So Jack, what's been up with you? So yeah, I've been continuing to work through a few niggles that I have, which is, I guess, the story of my updates for the last few weeks, but it is what it is. And yeah, it's slowly getting better, which is all I can ask for, really. And yeah, hopefully I continue to progress in that aspect. It's mainly my elbow, which is the major limiting factor at the moment. Other than that, uh, yeah, my clients have been going really well. I have Joseph, who is about three weeks out now from his natural Olympia in the US, which is really exciting. He's looking great for that. And yeah, I've got Ed as well, who will be doing IFBB Men's Physique Season A next year, which will, yeah, which we're making great progress towards as well. And yeah, doing weekly posing with him, all the relevant check-ins and that. And yeah, he's in a great position. So can't wait to see how he goes. Yeah, it's going to be so awesome to see Ed up there. He's looking great. And it's also awesome because, you know, now we have another competitor who is also doing IFBB for next year. And uh, Ed will be doing Arnold's as well. So this past week, we uh, got right onto the Airbnb website. And we've already booked our Airbnb for Arnold's next year in March. So super psyched for that. You know, we'll be going down with a group of about six people and should just be such a fun weekend. I can't wait. And man, we even booked a holiday well in advance again for next June for uh, we're going to Bali with Club Med. If you guys remember, we went to Thailand back in February with Club Med and Jack and I pretty much just fell in love. Like, oh my God, I cannot recommend Club Med enough. Like it is just all inclusive everything. It is an absolute dream. So we'll be going next June after all of my comps finish. So that'll certainly be something to look forward to. Yeah, I can't wait. It will be 
an interesting experience with uh, me at the peak of my off-season, Tierra, right after prep. So, yeah. <laughs> the question is just how much food can we eat? <laughs> they might have to open up another buffet. <laughs> yeah, but we will be uh, leading by example. Of course. <laughs> leading by example and also enjoying ourselves. Yeah, so how's your week been going, Tierra? Yeah, so this last week has been good. I actually just wrapped up my eighth week of prep. So now I am just under 17 weeks out from show number one. So still about 117 days to go. But uh, yeah, I guess in our last update, you know, I told you guys that I was running that diet break, which was awesome. So I ran that diet break for a week, which was now close to two weeks ago now. But uh, yeah, basically every single day my carbs were at 325, fats were at 40, and protein was at 140 grams. So that was really good. And you know, I definitely achieved exactly what I wanted from that diet break. It removed a lot of food focus, had me feeling really energetic. You know, I just felt good and it gave me that little extra boost of motivation to uh, move into this next phase of prep and really just kind of excited to start dieting again. So I've just started, you know, like a new macro split. So right now I'm doing five lower days and two higher days. So on my low days, which run from Saturday up until Wednesday, I'm on 200 grams of carbs, 35 grams of fat and 140 grams of protein. And then on Thursdays and Fridays, I have 325 grams of carbs, 140 protein and 35 fat. So that's actually been working really well for me. And, you know, ever since that diet break and implementing this, you know, my weight's been dropping. I'm steadily now in the 64s. So hanging around 64.7 right now. And uh, hopefully it can keep dropping, which is good. So, yeah, I'm feeling good. Really enjoying that. Really enjoying the higher carb days. And um getting a pump in the gym because on the other days I feel a little bit flat, but you know, that's just part of the process. And I, I will be honest, you know, like I'm not immune to this, right? I'm still always thinking about my physique and I'm always thinking about, you know, how I look, but I just have to remind myself that I'm still 17 weeks out, you know, I'm not supposed to be shredded yet. So just have to trust the process, keep going. And uh, the way things are going, I'm pretty darn happy. And yeah, so just doing lots of posing, posing practice. Work is really good. Taking on quite a few new clients this week has been awesome. Started the YouTube channel, met up with some friends, Kate and Oliver, which was really fun. And we trained together on Saturday. So yeah, I couldn't ask for much more. It's uh, It's been a really, really good week. So now we will jump straight into the questions, guys. We got heaps of good questions this week. So this first question is by Eden, and she asks, does it matter if you eat white meat or red meat to get iron? Is one better than the other? Damn, so this is actually such a good question, and when Jack and I read it, it really got us thinking. But uh, I guess when we think about, you know, why some meat is red and why some meat is white, we kind of have to apply a bit of physiology. And I think if anyone studied exercise physiology, you would have learned about, you know, fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers and, you know, the different types of fuel sources that they use. So 
Red meat is predominantly made up of type 1 muscle fibers, which are predominantly known as slow twitch, right? And red meat usually has a higher amount of myoglobin in it. So myoglobin is a type of cell in our body that can carry a lot of oxygen and deliver a lot of oxygen to working muscles. So yeah, red meat, high in myoglobin, very oxidative, slow twitch. But then white meat is usually uh, it has a lower percentage of myoglobin, hence, you know, it's, a, it's more white or in, you know, some types of meats like pork, it's a little bit pink. But this is because these muscle fibers are predominantly fast twitch and type 2 muscle fibers. So they're more anaerobic. So if you think about something like a chicken, right? So a chicken, it's both its breasts are white. The reason for that is because if you think about what the breasts roles are in a chicken, <laughs> I know I'm talking about chicken breasts, <laughs> but, uh, but you, so a chicken's, you know, role is to fly, right? So that need, that's a very intensive process and it can't necessarily be oxidative because it requires a lot of fuel. So those muscle fibers are fast twitch, more anaerobic. They're using more glycogen compared to something like, let's say a cow, you know, who's just walking around the field, eating some grass, nice and slow, chilling out. It doesn't need those fast twitch muscle fibers. So they're more slow twitch. So that's why, you know, the meat in a cow's legs or something like that, or in its back would be very high in myoglobin, very red. So yeah, uh, but if we think about that, a huge component of myoglobin is iron. Just like in human beings, you know, our blood has hemoglobin and that's a huge component of that is iron. So red meat certainly will have a higher proportion of iron compared to white meat. And it's actually pretty darn significant. So we just pulled this information up from Nutrition Australia and they indicate that per 100 grams of meat, Beef has 3.5 milligrams of iron and something like chicken has 0.4 milligrams. So there's about nine times more iron in beef compared to chicken. And that's in the heme form as well, which is a lot more bioavailable than the non-heme form. Something like, for example, one cup of kidney beans provides you with 3.1 milligrams of non-heme iron. So yeah, you can see that kidney beans has more non-heme iron than uh, chicken has heme iron. So 3.1 one compared to 0.4. But then of course we have to factor in that uh, the non-heme iron, a lot less of it is absorbed than the heme iron. Yeah, there can be a lot of issues with iron absorption. So even with heme iron, you know, I think we learned in our studies that usually only actually 40% of heme iron is usually absorbed compared to something like non-heme iron where it's usually only like 17% is absorbed and a lot of things can influence iron absorption. So one thing that can negatively influence it is, you know, if you consume your meal with some calcium or if you also consume it with the tannins from things like tea and coffee. So that can negatively influence iron absorption, but then things that can positively influence iron absorption, particularly the non-heme form, is if you consume your meal with a source of vitamin C. So for example, let's say that you are consuming kidney beans, you know, in a salad, put some capsicum and tomatoes in that salad to increase the vitamin C content, and that might help you absorb a little bit more iron. But uh, something that else is pretty interesting is that, you know, 
Females' iron requirements are usually 18 milligrams per day, whereas a male's iron requirements are only between like 8 to 10 milligrams per day. And that is because females, if they're menstruating, they lose iron through the blood when they, you know, have their period. But that is in relation to heme iron requirements. So if you are following a plant-based diet, you actually require close to double that amount. So a female following a plant-based diet actually needs to consume closer to 36 milligrams per day of non-heme iron to actually meet her iron requirements. So that's just something to uh, keep in mind. But yeah, if you guys want a full list of the amount of iron in, you know, animal sources and plant sources, definitely just type in like Iron Nutrition Australia into Google and um, you'll come up with a full list and that'll be really helpful. Great, all right, so we'll move on to another question. So this one was asked by Kenya and it says, if you eat a high carb and low fat diet, will you always hold on to water weight or will your body eventually drop the water weight? Because I eat a high carb, low fat diet and I know carbs store a certain amount of water for every gram of carb. This is another really good question. So yeah, I think in Kenya's situation, for her, it'll the more carbs that she eats, she will hold on to more water. And because as we know, for when glycogen is stored, it uses water as well to do that. So, but it depends on which situation you're talking about. So for another individual who suddenly like goes out to dinner, consumes a lot more extra carbs than usual, maybe with some extra sodium as well, they will hold on to a lot more water weight. And that's partially due to the sodium, but also the extra carbs in they're used to as well. But if you're following more of like a chronic approach of a high carb diet, so consuming like, let's say like 300 grams of carbs a day, and you incrementally increase this when you're when you need more food if you are practicing like a i guess a physique athlete approach in terms of slowly increasing your weight over time then yes you will continually hold on to more water with the more glycogen you're using yeah exactly but you know as long as you do keep things consistent you, your body's just going to be consistently at that weight and the body is very very good at regulating fluid balance so you're gonna be perfectly fine, you know? And we have to remember that like over 60% of the body is water. So water and holding onto fluid is super duper important. And having more water and more glycogen in your muscle cells, it's going to give you that fuller look and you're going to have increased exercise performance as well. But yeah, technically if you do have more glycogen constantly, then yes, you will hold onto a little bit more water, but this will just be a normal amount for you. It's just going to feel a lot different if you drastically cut carbs for a few days and you do lose a heck of a lot of water and a lot of fluid. But uh, you'll, you'll also find that anyone who has followed a very low carbohydrate diet approach or a ketogenic approach as well, you do go pee a lot more often if you keep up your fluid intake because just like you said, each gram of carbohydrates is gonna store three to four grams of water. And if you're not consuming a lot of carbohydrates, that's just gonna pass right through you. So you're gonna go pee a lot. But honestly, it's, don't worry, it's nothing to worry about. Water's just fine in the body. Yeah, the other thing to take into consideration as well is that let's say you are consuming, uh, like again, 300 grams of carbs and over time you push your body weight up from let's say like 65 to 68 kilos, then you're, it will, you will assume that your carbohydrate intake will increase 
but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be holding onto more water just because the carbohydrates have increased. It's also because your body weight is heavier. So you need more energy in order to increase your body weight because your glycogen stores might already be at 100% or close to that thereabouts with your previous carb intake. But because you are increasing your body weight, you need more food. So I hope that kind of makes sense. Yeah, just uh, just eat more if you need to eat more, right? <laughs> so this next question is about glycerol. And the question asker asks, does glycerol increase pump and vascularity or is it not worth the money? Now, this is a good question. And it kind of follows on nicely from the previous one, you know, talking about how the body is retaining extra water and sometimes that can make you feel a bit uncomfortable. So glycerol, interestingly enough, was only just made legal in 2018 on the WADA approved list. So Jack and I actually learned about this supplement back in 2016 during our sports science studies. And uh, it was actually illegal, but now it's legal, which is pretty interesting. So. Glycerol is actually already naturally occurring in the body and it is a component of cell membranes. But the thing is, is that glycerol has a hyperhydrating effect. So when you consume glycerol, it actually allows you to retain more fluid. And in terms of sports performance, this actually can benefit some athletes who are, you know, training in the heat and they're prone to dehydration. Uh, and it can also, you know, reduce perceived um, exertion as well and improve their sweat rates too. So glycerol can have these positive benefits, but the reason why it was actually illegal in the first place is because they thought that it might pose a health risk because if you are hyperhydrated, one, you can dilute your electrolytes, but also, you know, just having higher blood volume, higher blood viscosity could potentially endanger your cardiovascular system. But now they've proven that it is pretty safe. So yeah, uh, the thing is though, is that because it's so new and it's only just recently been made legal, there isn't actually that much literature on it. And I haven't actually seen many like companies promoting it per se. And we do have to remember that, you know, if you are an athlete who is competing in a weight class division, holding on to extra fluid, obviously that is going to influence your weight. Or like if you are a certain type of athlete who, if you are a runner, for example, like you are going to be heavier on the track or on the trail. So you just have to keep those things in mind too. But in terms of, you know, supplemental dosages, so the current literature shows that consuming 1 to 1.2 grams of glycerol per kilogram of body weight combined with 25 to 30 milliliters of water per kilogram of body weight is generally what's going to give you that hyperhydrating effect and help some athletes perform better. So for example, if you were 70 kilograms, this would pretty much equate to between 70 to 85 grams of glycerol, which is quite a bit mixed with 1.7 to 2.1 liters of water. So 70 to 85 grams of a supplement is quite a lot. When you think about one scoop of protein powder is, you know, 30 grams, right? That's close to three scoops of protein powder in terms of glycerol. So it is quite a lot and that is quite a bit of water. So you would have to weigh it up. But uh, Jack, what do you think? Yeah, personally, I just don't think there's enough evidence at the moment to sort of reveal the potential side effects of glycerol usage 
And yeah, it definitely has its, I wouldn't say use it on a regular basis, but in certain situations like coming back from having to dehydrate yourself for a weigh-in for powerlifting or martial arts, boxing, etc., or potentially when bodybuilders also have to do that um, to make weight for a show and stuff like that. So yeah, it definitely could have its uses for sure. Yeah, definitely. But I'd say for the average person, probably just stick to carbohydrates, you know, salt and uh, just staying adequately hydrated. I wouldn't, I certainly would not say that this supplement is necessary for you to spend your money on and consume regularly. Okay, so we're going to move on to these next questions. We got quite a few on reverse dieting, which certainly seems to be a hot topic right now. Now that, you know, season B has come to a close for most people. So I'm just gonna combine all of these. So the first one says, what is the most important aspect of reverse dieting to focus on? The next one says, how to ease off cardio while reverse dieting? And the other one, which is related as well, says lean bulking, where to start post-show. So Jack, take the floor. So yeah, as Tierra said, it. I think we have talked about reverse dieting quite a lot, but definitely is a relevant topic at the moment and looks like a lot of people want to hear about it. So we got to remember that the key and the most important factor of reverse dieting is at least from a physiological standpoint is basically increasing your body fat and normalizing all of those uh, physiological cues such as hunger, sex drive, relationship with food, hormones, all that sort of stuff. And uh, we got to do that as efficiently and as effectively as possible. So And this is why Tierra and I go for the recovery diet, which was coined by 3DMJ, as opposed to the typical reverse diet. And the recovery diet is much more aggressive. So the numbers that we give in that 3DMJ reference as well is about gaining 5 to 10% of your stage weight in the first four to six weeks after comp. And yeah, as opposed to the reverse diet, which is like increasing your carbs by 25 grams or even less every week, going for a very slow approach. And the reason why we go for that aggressive approach is just to normalize everything as soon as possible. Because if you do, if you do only increase your carbs very slowly, then you could be in a deficit or maintaining for a very long period of time. So, so let's say, and the other benefit of being more aggressive is that we want to try and probably one of the more important factors for some people is normalizing their relationship with food and by giving you quite a large calorie increase to start that allows you to, I guess, not go over the top and have those periods of extreme overeating and binging, which is definitely a normal reaction after comp. It's not ideal, but it is normal. So yeah, in terms of the cardio aspect, this is a interesting one for us because a lot of our clients don't do a lot of cardio. So uh, particularly for, I would say that we prioritize steps instead of cardio. And we usually, we've given this reference before, we try not to go above 15,000 steps per day. And yeah, we do implement some other forms of cardio when required, but it is quite minimal. So, but let's say you are doing cardio. We do want to try and remove a lot of that cardio to as soon as you finish competing and not just for the physical reasons, but also the psychological of still having to do a lot. And it's just not required if we're trying to gain, gain weight after show as well. Yeah, certainly. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in terms of the cardio aspect, it's going to be so individual because uh, some people actually really like doing cardiovascular work. You know, it makes them feel really good. But at the same time, you really do want them to 
you don't want them to be in that mentality at all of, you know, like after they eat a meal, they need to go immediately expend that energy to burn off those calories. So you certainly want to try to avoid that mentality. And if you were ever a coach who did have a client, you know, doing cardio six days a week, and I'm, I'm certainly saying on behalf of Jack and I, we aren't those types of coaches. Uh, but if you did have a client who, you know, was doing that amount of cardio, you could probably start by maybe having it and then, you know, just start, start uh, slowly reducing it as, you know, you build their food intake up, steps even out, you know, and because uh, you just want to remove that expended energy being done through cardio and you really want to dedicate that more to really prioritizing your resistance training sessions too and yeah it is going to be really individual but I'll admit you know I do have quite a few female clients who they genuinely enjoy cardio because you know it gives them that endorphin rush it makes them feel good so I'm not going to say no you can't do any you know it's always a compromise and every single person is different so there's nothing wrong with cardio but certainly don't like prioritize it over your resistance training sessions or be doing like one or two hours every single day of the week kind of thing so yeah it's going to be so client specific there and yeah i guess the final part is in terms of how much weight to gain and also like lean bulking and where to start per show so this really comes down to Essentially, it's very popular to hear that the reverse diet is more difficult than the comp prep itself. And for some people, that's very true, especially if you've just come out of a comp prep, which is very specific, and now you don't have any other goals in mind that you want to achieve. So that's why we think it's really important to set some short or long-term goals that you can achieve. For example, um, improving your physique again for the next show or increasing your strength. And yeah, it's just going to be about trusting the process and waiting until everything normalizes, waiting until your food increases steadily over time, and eventually you'll get through it. Like it, we, Tierra and I have both gone through that post-show period. For Tierra, it was a bit smoother for her. For me, it took quite a few months in order for my testosterone to come back to normal again. And in that time, I was pretty hungry all the time. I wasn't particularly motivated. I remember walking to each training session and it's like I wasn't very pumped for the session. I was kind of dreading how hard it was going to be. And this is coming from someone who like loves to train. Their whole day is usually orientated around training. So yeah, it definitely does take its toll. And the reality is for guys, if you're a natural athlete, at least it's going to be a few months until you get back into the groove again and gain back your lost muscle. And then only then after maybe even four or five months, will you start to put on new muscle and those are quite, that's a bit of a guesstimation, but um, I think for myself, at least that was true. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that, you know, and it really goes to show that taking more of a recovery diet approach is usually a hell of a lot more optimal than doing a reverse dieting approach because we have to remember that even if you do have an acute bout of a lot of calories, right? It's just acute, it doesn't last that long. So even if you have a big meal with a bunch of carbs, you might feel good for a little while, but it drains off. So you really should take that recovery diet approach to 
eat more consistently on a consistent basis, you know, to get your body weight back up and normalize yourself again. Because I know Jack was taking that approach and you just heard about how long it took him, right? And how tough it actually was. So just imagine Jack, how tough it would have been if you would have done a more reverse dying approach. And that thing would have been like four times as long. Yeah, definitely. And I would say in I would say if you do conduct your recovery diet effectively, it wouldn't take as long as it took me. Like, I think we were both a little bit surprised and my coach at the time was as well that I was like, we were literally increasing my food every week, sometimes two or three times a week. And my weight just wasn't like, I uh, wasn't playing ball. And like, so it ended up taking a while for me to gain the necessary weight. And like, sh- what we should have done is just here, have like 200 extra carbs and gain some weight, but it ended up taking me months to to put on like three or four kilos. Yeah, you certainly have one of the most adaptive metabolisms upwards way that uh, that I have ever known in a person. And I think certainly something that we learned from that experience, and I think we should really emphasize on the podcast too, is that if during your competition prep, you are following a higher carbohydrate, lower fat approach, Post comp, especially if you are a guy, it is really important that you do get your fats up. So if you were closer to like 0.3 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of fats during comp prep, shoot those fats up to like one gram per kilogram of body weight. And that's really going to help to restore a lot of your hormones in particularly testosterone for guys. And I think that was definitely a learning experience that we had with Jack's uh, recovery diet approach. Yeah, especially since I was consuming so much fiber so that impaired the absorption of um, fatty acids even more so. Yeah, well, luckily we live and we learn. Okay, so that was good on reverse dieting. So we'll move on to another topic. So this next one is by Nathan and he asks, when to run diet breaks? We know we should, but when? For example, wanna run a diet break and in the hope of hormonal restoration and a break. However, his training hasn't decreased at all. And if anything, it's still improving. So should a diet break be implemented anyway or maybe when things start getting rough? So yeah, this is a good one. And yeah, Nathan's right that we know we should, but typically the, I guess the athlete mentality is that they want to keep pushing and keep pushing for more weight loss and stuff like that. And yeah, we need to find that balance between the two. And to be honest, there's, there's just not a heap of information right now on diet breaks and how effective they are. So we do know that one, they are effective as a psychological break. We know that they do increase your glycogen stores, provide you with more energy, potentially make you feel better as well, potentially increase training performance due to more energy. However, we don't know the sort of very, because if you run a weak diet break, that's not very long in terms of hormonal changes. So um, changes to leptin or ghrelin, which are the hunger hormones or changes to testosterone. But I would say it's still worth it for sure Tierra's just finished her diet break a couple weeks ago and in terms of how often you should run them yeah that'll be quite individual depending on the client and we had a discussion on this podcast a couple week couple episodes now about whether to do them on a deload or not and i think personally we wouldn't run them in the first six weeks of a prep we'd probably run them after six weeks and that's typically because 
that's when people experience the hit of hunger or when they usually start feeling the diet more significantly? Yeah, it's going to be super individual. And I would say that if you want to know a lot about diet breaks, I would definitely check out our episode number 16, where we interviewed Jackson Pios. So Jackson is over at the University of Western Australia, and he is actually studying, you know, during his PhD, the effects of diet breaks on all of these different parameters within athletes. So the current protocol that he's running is three weeks of constant energy restriction and then a one week diet break where calories are brought up to maintenance, followed by you know another three weeks energy restriction, one week diet break. Pretty sure it's over a 12 week span. And he's comparing that to a group of individuals who are just doing 12 weeks straight of dieting. So. Pretty darn interesting, but uh, his paper hasn't been published, but I think that once it is, everyone is going to have their hands and their eyes on it because it's gonna be awesome to see those results. But, you know, a lot of researchers out there are trying to answer these questions too because it is a very new topic. And unfortunately, there isn't a lot of research out there, you know, conclusive research on bodybuilders and people performing these special diets like diet breaks and things like that. But uh. I guess there's pretty much two approaches that you could take in implementing diet breaks. So you could either pre-plan them. So let's say that you had mapped out your contest prep. So you could take Jackson Piazza's approach, you know, and implement a diet break every fourth week, or depending on you, you know, you could implement it every sixth week or every 10th week. So you could actually have a pre-plan in there so that that really makes you commit so that even when you reach that week during your contest prep, you know, and as all competitors do, they want to keep pushing, they want to drop calories, they want to work harder. It says, no, you have to follow the plan and you need to look after yourself and take this diet break this week. Or you can auto-regulate diet breaks. And depending on that, you really have to have the signs and the symptoms that you need a diet break. So Jack, if you had a client, what would be some signs that they would show that they'd possibly benefit from having a diet break? So probably the most ideal one is actually when you're really on track for your weight loss and you don't really need to actually lose any more at this stage because you don't want to become over dieted and waste away. So, and that's actually something that I've did with one of my previous clients, Lockie, who competed uh, season B this year. And yeah, we did, I think in total three diet breaks because yeah, he was really on track and everything was going smoothly. Some of the less ideal reasons you might diet break is if um, your body weight's doing funky things and it's not really being that predictable. Like when you know you're in a deficit and it's not really playing ball, a few other things could be a decrease in training performance or poor sleep quality and an increase in food focus as well. Yeah, exactly. And some of these things can be brought on just really acutely, especially the food focus. Like you could be eating the exact same amount of food, but then just one week, you're just like overly hungry and you can't stop thinking about food. It uh, That's certainly what I experienced too. But just like you said at the start, that really is one of the benefits to starting a prep further out. So 25 plus weeks so that you really t- can take care of yourself, you know, and you can implement diet breaks and you don't have to do anything drastic. And hopefully with new research that does come out in the future, 
hopefully you know there are some positive correlations between having a diet break and being able to you know restore some of that hormonal balance so maybe you know having leptin a little bit higher having ghrelin a little bit lower maintaining a higher thyroid hormone maintaining higher testosterone all of those different things so and that would be awesome but time will just really tell with those types of results so we're going to finish on one more question for the day and this one has to do with training so it says how often should you change up your workout routine and is it bad to stick with the same one so yeah this is a great question and there are a few factors to it that we need to consider so typically what we do is we have different training blocks of course so training block might last anywhere from six weeks up until in tiara's case like 20 weeks <laughs> and <laughs> um i just train and train and train man <laughs> Yeah, Tierra doesn't, like I'm, I've been taking deloads every six weeks. Tierra doesn't really need them that frequently at all. Yeah, I think that's something pretty common for females. We just tend to have a much higher recovery capacity than guys. Yeah, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> We can just keep going. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I've lost my, okay, here we go. Um, so anyway, back to the question. To be honest, we wouldn't really change much between each training block. We might change a few of the accessory exercises like um, alternating dumbbell bicep curl to just a cable curl on the cable machine. And yeah, we would try and leave most exercises the same. And the reason behind this is there's definitely no such thing as shocking the muscle and changing up frequently in order to do that. And if anything, it's the opposite. It's the other way around. Like it can take up to 12 weeks to actually um, neurologically adjust to a new movement. And when I say neurologically, I mean to get down the movement pattern and reap all those strength increases due to becoming more efficient with the movement pattern, let's say with a squat, before you actually make strength gains that are associated with more muscle. And obviously it's not gonna take 12 weeks going from like a um, squat to a hack squat or uh, another similar exercise like a barbell bench to a dumbbell bench, but um, it still will take some time. So we wanna try and if something's progressing steadily, like you're increasing strength, staying injury free, you're enjoying it, there's no need to really change up an exercise and you can just keep uh, maximizing those uh, gains that you're getting from, those, from the, your current routine. And yeah, like some other reasons you might change up is if like you are not enjoying it or you're getting bored, you're trying, want to try like maybe a new type of split. So like going from push pull legs to upper lower or something like that. But then again, you would still try and keep the, the base exercises the same. Yeah, exactly. It kind of comes back to that old saying, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So if you've got a good workout routine that, you know, you're progressing with and you're making great gains and you're enjoying it, you know, once you reach week four or week eight or week 10 or whatever, you don't need to change it. You know, you can keep going. And I would argue that there are certain movements in the gym that you just can't replace. Like biomechanically, if you can perform them well and they don't pose any risk of injury, I don't think there's a reason why you necessarily need to sub out a barbell back squat, you know, or something like a barbell bench press or a hip thrust. Like those are awesome movements and you can keep doing them. But 
Obviously, across mesocycles, you might want to change your rep ranges. You might want to change, you know, the number of sets you do, weight targets you're trying to hit. So you can change little things like that, but you don't have to remove the exercise completely. But I guess the main point is that give yourself time to neurologically adapt to an exercise program and uh, give it a real shot, you know? Don't attempt something for three or four weeks and then completely switch it up because you're really, really not gonna be able to maximize your progress in that case. And unfortunately, I know that there are a lot of workout programs out there, you know, like four week challenge, eight week challenge, or you know, you can choose to do these different things. And that is perfectly fine if that's your goal. If your goal is to just exercise, expend a little bit of energy, feel good, feel fit. But if your goal is to maximize your physique and make serious changes, then you need to follow very strategically a structured exercise program, I would say. So yeah, I uh, I guess that's, that's a good wrap up, right? Yeah, so... As always, we'll finish with something that we've each learned this week. So I'll let Tierra go first. Man, what did I learn this week? I think I learned, you know, because obviously we started our YouTube channel this week is that YouTube takes a hell of a lot of time, man. Like (laughs) a 12 minute video will take you minimum 12 hours of probably constant editing, constant filming, you know, and that's being, that's being generous, right? So I would say upwards of like 12 to 36 hours probably. And man, it's just a lot of work, but, uh, it is a lot of fun. And I, I've really enjoyed, you know, filming our first videos and especially my first vlog. I really enjoyed putting that together. It was really fun and I can't wait to keep doing more, but shiz, man, I admire these YouTubers who release content like every single day like christian guzman like and the quality of the content too it makes sense obviously why they hire videographers and holy crap though pumping out videos like that every single day how would you sleep yeah you wouldn't basically but (laughs) yeah that would probably be what i learned this week as well as just in terms of how to set up a youtube account and do all that fancy stuff with your channel and link all the stuff at the end and learn how to edit and yeah i'm just using imovie on my mac which is free but even then there's a few fancy things that you need to learn in terms of editing and transitions and cutting things and music and all that sort of stuff yeah certainly and you know as the videos go on i'm sure we will get fancier and fancier just as we learn but uh But yeah, the bodybuilding dietitians are on the tube. So make sure to go check us out. And uh, the YouTube. Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) Not the other tubes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, But yeah, please make sure you go check us out. And yeah, we would absolutely love it if you guys would please subscribe to the channel. And, you know, feel free to leave a like if you want to leave a comment. But yeah, that is the end of our 49th podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please do take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tag Jack, tag myself, and we'll catch you next week.